Welcome to Her Stories, a series of podcasts showcasing the diverse expertise, wisdom, and courage of the members of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, presented by peace activist Magda Zenon. In each episode, recorded during the coronavirus social isolation period, a different mediator shares her story. Hello, this is Magda, and today on Her Stories, we have Alessandra Manolia Diaz, a researcher at the Portuguese Institute of International Relations and Assistant Professor of Political Studies at the Novo University of Lisbon. Welcome, Alexandra. Hello, it's a great pleasure to be here with you today. And it's always a pleasure to see you, Magda, <laughs> uh, especially in these very difficult uh, circumstances and times. So I'm very uh, privileged and honored to be here today. Uh, I'm very honored that you agreed to speak with us. And I'm very honored to be in the position to actually introduce you to the listeners. So please tell me, who is Alexandra? Uh, so if I have a chance to speak of myself, uh, in terms of what I've been doing in the past years, I've been doing research um, with borderland groups in the Horn of Africa specifically in the borderland between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, Eritrea was an Italian colony, and in the aftermath of World War I, uh, uh, the UN decided to create a federation. After a period, um, the emperor, Heli Selassie, decided to dissolve the federation and incorporated Eritrea as a province of Ethiopia. This triggered an insurgency um, mm. against the uh, unlawful and legitimate uh, Ethiopian uh, occupation of Eritrea, which lasted for most of the Cold War. And it's very um, important to highlight um, that you, you have had uh, across centuries um, very strong bonds between the two communities on both sides of the border, Cousins, intermarriage, they speak the same language, very similar. So the nature of the uh, artificial creation of borders, it's not specific to this part of the world. You have this in many regions mm. of the international system. So in the aftermath of the Cold War, the conditions were created for the new leaders of Ethiopia to recognize the new states of Eritrea okay. on the basis of the borders inherited from colonialism. So in, the sen in this sense, the creation of Eritrea did not challenge uh, the principle that was on the basis of the creation of other states in Africa, the principle of uti possidetis. Okay. So uh, and, uh, um, unexpectedly, uh, after independence, so there was a referendum and the aftermath of the referendum in 1993, Eritrea became independent. Um, became independent, but uh, the relations between the two countries were not formally defined as two sovereign states because there was a strong proximity between the heads of states um, of Ethiopia and Eritrea. So the head of state was still in power in Eritrea is Isaias Afwerki. He had been the leader of the Eritrean People's Liberation Front. Sorry, can I, can I interrupt you? It's also culturally 
people, respected spaces and communities. So formality was not really necessary in terms of making borders. Or am I wrong? Because you said it was a, they kind of, it didn't actually affect the way they operated. That was the problem because um, borders are not mere lines on maps. And Eritrea was created on the onset, on the, on the basis of its colonial pasts. So the borders had a very important meaning and very, various dimensions, socioeconomic dimensions, okay. historical dimension. So it was an important part of the creation of an, of an Eritrean national identity. Okay. So the fact that they didn't define the formal relations between Ethiopia and Eritrea later on had consequences. Okay. Specifically, when in 1997, uh, Eritrea decided to introduce its own currency, the NAKFA, on the expectation that exchanges, economic exchanges, would be carried on as per usual. On parity with the Ethiopian currency, the Ethiopian beer, which the Ethiopians didn't accept. Because so far, the until that moment, the relations had been carried on an informal basis. And it's important to highlight at this stage that the borders had been porous. So the citizens continued to cross regardless of the borders because mm. the borders were and demarcated. Yes. And so yes. they remained, even after Eritrea's independence, the citizens from Ethiopia would go and attend to weddings, funerals, would go to the market in Eritrea because it was much closer to them. We have to bear in mind that the people who live in the border, they think in terms of walking distance. So for them, their market, the closest mar- market, them. And this is what I learned the first times that I visited the borderland. Their market would be the market across the border in Eritrea and not the market further away in Ethiopia, which would entail 10 hours of walking. But can I ask you something? Were there checkpoints? Did they not even have checkpoints? Did they have to go through checkpoints? No, until the war, the borders were completely uh, undemarcated and uh, the state agents and institutions' uh, presence was um, limited or or was not there in many parts of the border. So the border uh, was a porous border, like many other borders in Africa Mm. or in other regions of the international system. Nowadays, it's one of the most militarized borders um, of the world and in in Africa. Even if we had a rapprochement, with the coming a new prime minister to uh, Ethiopia, Prime Minister Habib Ahmed, um, who uh, received with a laureate of the Nobel Peace Prize okay. because of his rapprochement with Eritrea. Uh, however, this rapprochement in the short term has not brought the expected benefits, neither to the Eritreans neither to the borderland groups, because after um, um, a period um, when the border was opened in September 2018, um, up to November 2018, uh, Eritrea decided unilaterally to close the border again in, a, in, the, in the central part where I normally do field work, field work in Zalambesa. Okay. I don't want to be very specific. I just want to focus 
that um, this border had been for um, different eras of international relations, and even um, during the period that uh, Eritrea was an Italian colony, the border had been demarcated, and it was a porous border. So people were used to crossing the border. And uh, even during the civil war, during the dark period, during the Cold War, many parts of the border is a 1,000 kilometer border. Yes, it's a long border. Yes, exactly. So many parts of the border are considered terra nullios, no man's land. So uh, insurgent opposition groups, insurgent groups would uh, uh, would cross the border to go to search for safe haven on the other side. Um, so when did so when did this start becoming a security risk or a, a an area of conflict? So um, we have to bear in mind that when Eritrea became independent, Ethiopia lost direct access to the sea. So Ethiopia became a landlocked country. Mm-hmm. And this is a major transformation. Absolutely. Because uh, at this stage, before the 1998 war, Ethiopia was completely dependent on Eritrea or was um, too much dependent on um, only the port uh, of Asab, which was on Eritrea, uh, uh, sovereign territory, Um, to uh, have access to the outside world. And this was a major um, strategic mistake. And only in the aftermath of the war did Ethiopia diversify its access to the sea through Djibouti, okay. the port of Djibouti, and through Berbera, which is in a contested area too, because Somaliland, which was colonized by the British, um, With the um, disintegration of Somalia, with the fall of the regime of Siad Barre in 1991, uh, unilaterally declared independence. So to this day, Somaliland, that unilaterally declare, declared independence, remains an unrecognized state. T- tell me, tell me, Alexandra, this is quite a complicated part of the world, a, a history. When you when you went there, what were the major challenges you found there were in terms of people um, finding solutions to borders, finding solutions to communication, finding solutions to interaction? And um, the real problem remains that the the local communities they have a very profound knowledge of the border. They know exactly um, where um, the lines or the borderline be very pre- precise uh, lays. They know the communities on the other side of the border. Um, they know the units, the administrative units. Ethiopia went through a major transformation after 1991 and with the introduction of a new model, a federal-based model. Okay. And this was a novelty in the, the, the political project of state building in Ethiopia. What we can witness up to this day is a disregard for the voices of the local borderland groups. So the approach followed to the problem, it's a top-down approach. The decisions were taken by an Ethiopian Eritrea Boundary Commission based at the Hague, 
which was um, created in the aftermath of the Algiers peace agreement. Uh, and the situation was further complicated by the decisions brought uh, about by these uh, Eritrea Boundary Commissions. And what is very important is to bear in mind um, the um, opinions, the perspectives of the local borderland groups, because their life Changes. has been um, mortgaged, hampered um, by the closure of the border. Who is losing the most with the closure of the border? Those based at the capital in Addis Abeba. The capital in Addis Abeba is very far from the border, mm. but not the capital in Eritrea, Asmara, which is very close to the border or so, much so, closer to the border. So yet again, decisions were made by the top with complete disregard to the people that were directly affected by the changes that were coming about. And still is the case. This is still the case. And this is a major problem. So what I was very impressed when I participated at the Cyprus Antenna uh, antenna Lounge in the context of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, of which I'm a founding, uh, very proud founding founding member like you, Magda, uh, where I had the, the privilege to get to know you better. So what really impressed me when I participated at the um, Cyprus Antennas Lounge, was to learn and to be exposed to the amazing experiences of women who have been involved for decades in the mediation, in the peace process mediation at the local level. And this was, for me, it was very enriching because I had been studying um, the, the, the problem in Cyprus Island for very long. It's a traditional case study. Yes. And when I started engaging with the problem of Ethiopia and Eritrea, Ethiopia and Eritrea for, uh, for some time until 2007, uh, they had a UN mission, the UN mission for Ethiopia and Eritrea which created a temporary security zone along the 1000 border. And this temporary security zone had a 25 kilometer buffer zone (laughs) inside Eritrean territory. So when I arrived at Nicosia, I discovered that this capital had a buffer zone and the buffer zone was extremely thin. And we had our meeting inside the, the UN buffer zone. And when I started listening to these amazing women sharing their experience throughout the decade, I have to confess, I was very impressed by their resilience um, for um, their uh, um, capacity to intermingle. And this was very, very, um, um, this was very similar to the Ethiopian Eritrean experiences because the problems were not between the people. Yes. Ethiopians. Eritreans. They, many people along the borderlines, they are cousins. Some of them speak the same languages. They attend funerals. They attend, uh, some of them had been without um, the, had been without the possibility to see one another since the closure of the border in 2000. So when the border opened in September 2018, it was a beautiful moment to witness because it was pure joy. But I, but I have to agree with you, Alexandra. I always, a lot of the time when I come together with my Turkish Cypriot sisters, I, I, I 
they're friendships that are very strong. And they are friendships not because we we share common uh, principles and common values, but because we really like each other. So this and this is what's ta- this is what has maintained the women's peace movement in Cyprus. In that, in fact, there's a group of women that are really, really bound together and really committed. As long as it takes, we are going to stay there to ensure, as far as possible, that women will be involved in the peace process and that we can bring peace to ourselves and, or at least, to our children. So I agree with you. There is a resilience that I underestimate at times. <laughs> or I take it for granted. Resilience, it is this resilience that impressed me. And when the border opened in September 2018, um, some of the traditional mechanisms of reconciliation were enacted. So what did they organize? These uh, Shimagle assemblies, the Irob, they organized these Shimagle assemblies where they all come together. They prepare a meal together. They speak about their past grievances. And they reconcile. Mm. No, I agree. Our, our checkpoints opened in um, 2003 or four. I forget. And the, that day that there, there was a partial opening of the checkpoints, there were thousands of people waiting at the checkpoints just to cross because until then you needed a piece of paper to get permission. You need to have a reason. Wherever you went, I remember one of the first visits I did to the north in 2000, I went to interview Emine, one of our fellow Mediterranean women mediators, made, and they waited for us at the checkpoint. We got into the car. The, the man from the administration came into Emine's office with us. He listened to the interview, and then he took us back to the checkpoint. So so when the board, the checkpoints opened and you could just go, you could see people just running across to go back to their homes that, that they hadn't been to since 74, some since 63. And I mean, there were people that would come and look, people that were staying in homes, say Turkish Cypriots that were staying in homes of Greek Cypriots in the north, that they, and they'd found a wedding dress or photographs. And they would look, because the checkpoints had opened, they would look for the person who, who was the owner of those photographs or the owner of that wedding dress, to find them, to give it to them. It was really, really um, very uh, heartwarming to see that despite the borders, people wanted to get together. There was a connection. It hadn't been broken. And now, unfortunately, with the coronavirus, the first thing that the Greek Cypriot leadership did was close the checkpoints. And we don't know when they're going to open again. So they use it. They use it as a political tool as well. In addition to being the, the reason of the virus, that we do need to be careful with whatever we're doing, and we need to keep safe. The the checkpoints are a political tool in beyond being a health hazard, if they are. I understand what you're saying. So the 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 the, the checkpoints are also a, a political tool. Yes, uh, and they are reinforced whenever you have a situation considered of crisis. Yes. So rather than holding your hands together and developing a common response, exactly, um, and cooperating, um, you are um, uh, building fences and. Um, resorting to your own mechanisms and closing the border rather than um, 
raising hands to one another and finding a common solution to a common problem. Absolutely. I mean, this would have been an ideal situation with the coronavirus because it's an external threat. It's an invisible threat. So instead of coming together, because in the South, we do have better um, health services, okay? Because it's a EU recognized, it's an internationally recognized state. We've logged the EU, Aki Communitaire. The North is in a limbo uh, in terms of recognition. So you're actually denying people access to um, health resources. You're also denying the fact that you could actually spread the information, maybe not spread the resources, but spread the information. So it was, it's very. I find it very sad that they haven't used it to come together. They've used it to actually split people apart. During this period, so now if I were to visit Nicosia, I couldn't cross no, no, no. to the other side. No. So there was a border enforcement. Yes. So this is a retreat in terms of a process of rapprochement that has been going on. Yes. So it whenever is. there is a situation of crisis, there's a retrenchment of positions rather than an opening up uh, to the other side. Yes. In the case of Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, the leader of uh, Eritrea, the head of state, President Isaias Afurki, visited uh, uh, Eritrea, uh, Ethiopia, uh, Addis Abeba, uh, two or three weeks ago. But uh, we have a very um, tragic situation in Eritrea because uh, one or two years ago, uh, the president, uh, the head of state of uh, Eritrea, Eritrea is a very authoritarian state. Mm. It has never held um, elections Whoa, yeah, that's right. to power of the Eritrean's People Liberation Front that was transformed into the People's Front for Democracy and Justice. They have never implemented the constitution and um, the, the president decided to close all the Catholic health centers. So in a situation like COVID-19, uh, the resources of the state to fight against it are even uh, more um, reduced and limited. Uh, the borders are closed. Um, and this is a very complicated uh, situation. In the case of um, Ethiopia, uh, we have um, planes coming from Saudi Arabia on a daily basis with irregular migrants, mm -hmm. Ethiopian irregular migrants who are infected with COVID-19 and who are being sent back on a daily basis, sometimes planes uh, carrying almost, uh, sometimes per day, you have uh, 900 Ethiopians coming back to Ethiopia. And these are people who are infected with COVID-19. So this is a very difficult challenge uh, for Ethiopia at the current juncture. And the situation regarding concerning the border remains unresolved. And um, the formal, um, the formal um, pending issues still need to be defined, and the relations between two sovereign states uh, still need to be uh, defined and clarified, so that the issues that were at the basis of the conflict back in 1998 are not going to be repeated in the future. But one key element that is still missing from the equation mm -hmm. is the inclusion or the creation of mechanisms that include the borderland groups. 
in these processes of reconciliation and um, in terms of the disputed areas of along uh, the border. Can I ask you, Alexandra, in this, these borderland communities, is there reconciliation work being done at all? Is there work being done at the community level? Um, what I was trying to, to highlight is that there is no problem between the communities. So when the, the border was briefly opened in um, officially, so people were coming, like you were explaining, in 2003, when the border was open, mm. people wanted to cross to the other side. At, um, so Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots would go to one side and the others would come to the other side of the island. Curiosity was dominating yes. emotional attachment. Absolutely. was the dominating driving factor. And the same happened in Ethiopia. Uh, so the ones on the Ethiopian side of the border wanted to go to Asmara. Some had never been there. The border was closed since 2000 until 2018. So they grew up listening about, uh, the new generation mm -hmm. grew up, listening about Eritrea as a foreign country, whereas the elderly, for them, Eritrea was the same country. Okay. They made no distinction. You see, so for the, the children, um, you have to, to tell the children, you cannot cross the border. The other side is very dangerous. If you go to the other side of the border, they will take you. You'll never see your mommy back again. So you see, because the, the, the territory, the landscape is the same. Mm. We are speaking about mountains, especially in this part of the border that I follow, which is um, in uh, near Adigrat in Zalambesa, in uh, eastern Tigray, uh, the eastern zone of Tigray. Um, so when the border was open in September 2018, which coincides with the Ethiopian New Year, so okay. the Ethiopian New Year falls uh, in September, um, and uh, um, for some time they organized these uh, traditional uh, reconciliations, assemblies called Shimagli, where they all come together, they eat together, they share their grievances from the war period, and then they reconcile. So what you're saying to me is that all they need to do to sort out this problem, not all they need to do, one of the things they need to do, and it's really important, is to ensure that a representative from the borderland communities is at the table. I think that would be extremely important to start with. Yes, it's not the only thing, but it's a very it's a very important to ensure that every most communities are represented at the table. They have to be represented. Why? Because the ones that are losing the most with the closure of the border, they've been um, hostages of this closure of the border. They need the border to be open to benefit from the traffic, from the trade, from the crossings. Mm. They need this because all this youth, what I'm very... Um, um, well, I'm very worried each time that I visit. So last time that I visited, I couldn't be there in September 2018 for the border opening. I was suffering because I wanted so much to be there. Mm. I had so much, uh, so many expectations. So I was there in January. They had closed the border, but people were still crossing on foot. So they would come to the border town with the transport to the checkpoints, and then they would uh, walk 
until the the checkpoint in Zalambesa. They would cross the city. They would take the, they would take the transport, the Ethiopian transport, and then they would go shopping, um, buying basic items that in Ethiopia are available easily. Um, and then they would carry them what they could, and they would go back to Eritrea. On uh, a small, um, very small, small, small uh, villages uh, near the border, I attended a funeral where uh, Eritreans were present. So they just walk and they came for the funeral because they have the same traditions. And so what you what you can see here is that the youth, the only thing that they have in mind, and many of them have been sent back from Saudi Arabia, because there is a long, um, um, there are many uh, uh, family narratives and connections and stories of irregular migration to the Arabian Peninsula. And many of them have been sent back from Saudi Arabia. And the only thing that they have in their minds is to cross the Red Sea and make it to Saudi Arabia because they cannot see any prospect. So if the border were to be opened, at least they could be engaged in income generating activities. And what you see, these are extremely hardship areas Mm. characterized by extreme poverty. And at the same time, you have all these youths with um, no access to electricity, no access to potable water, but they have their smartphones Mm. We date on their mobiles. So this is like a um, telecommunication tsunami. But the they su- live in poverty, but, but they have access to these uh, affluent societies in the global north. So how can they accept that their future is going to be like the fut- like life of their parents and grandparents? But what you've uh, what you've just uh, spoken about now is reminds me of why it's so important to focus on early warning signs in terms of conflict because impoverished youth without hope are a feeding ground for um, violent extremism. These are the kind of young people that are easy targets for people like ISIS or for the Boko Haram. That's what you are witnessing in northern Mozambique, Cabo Delgado. And the other point is that the post-Cold War period forced a very traditional state creation on Africa that is not clear on borders. They didn't create a system that would work in a country, in a continent that works in a different way. You cannot have borders just stuck in the middle because that's the way people think. You've got to take into consideration the better ones, the way that people actually operate or cooperate or move. You can't just suddenly decide, well, this part you can't go past. Got to stop there. You can't do it. So there has been a total disrespect or disregard for what Africa was before or is. It still is. And it is becoming because people develop different strategies over time towards the border. And this is fantastic and fascinating. Mm. People learn how to take advantage of their multiple identities. And they have shifting strategies towards the borders. And that's why you need them at the table. Exactly. Because they are the ones who have to live and handle the daily consequences of decisions made either outside Africa Mm. or 
in the far distant capital. Yes. So these peoples who are affected on a daily basis and whose lives and future depend on the, the pending issues, yes. um, political issues uh, regarding concerning the normalization of relations, um, they have to be heard and they have to be taken into account mm. because they are the parties at stake. Yes. They, have, they are the ones who have the most to lose. Or to gain. Exactly. Yes. Because um, their life, their life is mortgaged. They are hostages yes. of the non Reprochement of the non-normalization of relations between the the, um, the leaderships or between the protagonists. Oh, yeah, I'm really getting educated today, Alexandra. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, because we're getting to the end of this conver- towards the end of this conversation, I think you've already shown us what the Mediterranean Woman Mediators Network has brought you, and it's a sisterhood. Okay. And also the exchange of information. You have learned things about borders or no man's land that you might not have learned as quickly or as on the ground as before because we you are in the same network as Cyprus. What else is this, what else else has the Mediterranean Woman Mediators Network brought you? Um, to start with this uh, opportunity to compare um, experiences, to exchange views, to learn from other people's trajectories of life and especially professional experiences. I've met an amazing diversity of women engaged in all sorts of activities. Um, they bring in, um, they bring in a, an amount of experience, an amount of knowledge First-hand knowledge. Yes. It's not just, especially for me, because I'm in academia. I breathe theories, <laughs> even if I'm uh, an Africanist and I do fieldwork and I'm passionate about what I do. And especially I'm passionate about people and my main motivation and my key driving um, um, force is engaging with people and listening to people and giving them agency, especially these unheard groups. Um, what I've g- learned and gained with the sisterhoods within the Mediterranean Women's Mediator Network is uh, to meet with like-minded women in very different regions of the international system, but still we are all connected through the Mediterranean. We have experiences from different conflicts. We have different um, ways of approaching um, peace and of uh, uh, sharing our experiences. And you have different generations uh, and different um, types of uh, careers. Mm. So it's very, very enriching. But I would, I would like to stress that one of my uh, highest moments, I have to say this because it was really a turning point in my life, was my experiences, my experience in Cyprus. It was really uh, a life-changing experience to be there, to meet women uh, inside the, the buffer zone. For me, it was just amazing to listen to their life stories, to listen how they handled with this through a decade of uh, their lives to listen to the new generation, to their daughters, what they bring with them, 
And they don't relate uh, to these stories the same way that their mothers or grandmothers do. So this is really a richness in terms of um, sharing and learning from other people's experiences. And then this allows me um, to bring this comparative perspective to my work with borderland groups in Ethiopia and in Eritrea. I'm very glad you got this opportunity to come to Cyprus and it was a turning point in your life. But it also, um, I can understand why you say that because it brought to life what you'd been studying all your life and a different perspective of it. So I'm glad you got the opportunity to come to Cyprus and I'm glad I got the opportunity to meet you. Um, in closing, I would like you to name one woman that inspires you. Because after all, we are a woman's, a woman's mediators network. I, I have to start with you, Magda Zenon, because you come from the civil society. Um, you are very engaged with civil society groups. You are an advocate. Uh, your, your life story is amazing. Um, you combine within your life story so many multiple uh, identities. Uh, you come from South Africa. You've lived in Cyprus. Uh, you are very passionate. You are an advocate for... You're going to make me blush. This mediation. And you are um, a person who goes for it. And uh, you take the risks to go after the people you have to speak with. So I really admire your inner strength. And you are very inspiring. So it's not... Uh, it, probably it was unexpected to you, but you are very inspiring to me. Also, Maria from the uh, Cyprus Antenna, because Maria, she's an academic, mm. she's a scholar. I have the deepest respect for her. Uh, she has this uh, unique capacity to combine theoretical in-depth with great um, human empathy and her life story. Yes. She's a victim also of this division. Yes, and she knows how to speak from her heart with her emotions and make sense of it through the theoretical lenses uh, that make part of her um, disciplinary training. So this combination um, that you have within your network and uh, that you bring into the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network explains very well why you were the first group to have your own antenna to be launched. So congratulations. <laughs> and I was very honored to be there at that very important moment for us all at the Mediterranean Women's Mediators ne Network. Uh, thank you very much for all these compliments. And I do, I will second what you said about Maria. She combines the activist and the academic so smoothly. She can justify the way her passion works through theory. She's unique and she's committed and persistent. Um, and I have to say that I, there isn't one woman within this network I don't admire. I think every single woman in this network is so unique, so special and so um, uh, strong. Because I think there we've got some awesome women in this network. Um, is there anything else you want to say before we sign off? Just uh, keep on doing the great work you are doing. It's very important to all of us. We're going to keep on doing it together, sister, because together we are stronger. Exactly. Thank you, Magda. Thank you, Alexandra. 
thank you very much for being with us on Her Stories and have a lovely rest of the day. It was wonderful to be with you today. I hope to see you very soon. Me too. Stay strong, stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Her Stories, please leave comments, suggestions and reviews and share with anyone you feel may find this equally interesting. A big thank you to our sponsor, UN Woman, and see you on the next episode. <laughs>